Love as an attribute of God is foundational to our understanding of who God is and why God does the things he does. Love is a motive tempering and fueling God's every interaction with humanity. Next week, as you know, is Easter Sunday. And we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? What is the point? Why does that matter? God's love for humanity is what motivated all of these actions. We cannot understand God without understanding his love for humanity. We cannot understand the gospel without understanding God's love for humanity. Now, as disciples of Jesus, we must have a solid grasp on the greatness of God's love as we seek to connect people to God through faith in Jesus Christ. People we are inviting to come next week. People we are praying that they will come and they will be saved. They are people God loves. We must be fully convinced of this because there are people in our world, probably people we know, who wonder if God could really love them. They, they have not necessarily lived the best of lives. They are aware of their own sin and their own depravity. And they can't be sure that a God like the God of the Bible could actually love them. We have to be able to tell them, yes, God loves you, but we have to do it in a way that explains to them why we know God loves them. Not just says God loves them, but can show from God's word why he loves them and how they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt God loves them. Now, at the same time, we have to be able to explain God's love because there are people who really aren't astounded at the idea that God would love them. I mean, why wouldn't God love them? They're pretty great people all on their own. They're good enough, they're smart enough, and, and doggone it, people like them. What's not to love? Well, as disciples of Jesus, we must be able to explain to them why God's love for them is amazing. The text we're going to look at today will help us in both of those areas. It will help us be able to explain to the one who feels unlovable how they can know for a fact God loves them. At the same time, it will help us explain to those who feel they are eminently lovable why God's love for them really is an amazing fact in their life. It will equip us to share the love of God with those who desperately need to have it so they can repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to Romans 5 verses 6 to 11 is what we're going to read. It should be page 860 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The title of the message is the relentless love of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. And Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. You have loved us with an everlasting love. You have loved us in a way that is tangible, that we can see and we can say, yes, I know God loves me. It's not just a thought, it's a reality. I can see it in the cross. I can see it in my life. 
And so in response to your love, how could we not love you and serve you and give ourselves for you? Today, help us to lay aside whatever cares of life we may have brought in. And in this time, Lord, in this time, listen to what your word and spirit have for us today. And Lord, as we look at this today, let your let Holy Spirit take this word and and push it down deep in our hearts. Or there may well be some in here today that struggle to believe God loves them. Maybe they struggle with sin in their life. They struggle to live as they should and they, they wonder if. Truly, you love them in the midst of all these struggles and in the middle of all of these failures. Let your word sink deep in and alleviate those fears and cause the the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts today. Father, cause us to be amazed at your love. Father, to be amazed at the fact that a God like you, an awesome, a glorious God would love us. Sinful, flawed people. Father, let this be something that stirs a flame and a passion for you in our hearts. Greater than what we've ever had before. (coughs) Father, let Holy Spirit take the word and drive it deep in our hearts. So not only would we know that you love us, but we would know you love everyone. (coughs) And Father, we would, it would change how we interact with people. Father, that we would not... Well, we wouldn't let culture disciple us into hating people Jesus loves. That we wouldn't let culture disciple us into saying we can only love these kinds of people. But we would love everyone that that you love. We would love everyone that Jesus died for. Father, make us bold to share your love. Make us bold to share the gospel. Fill me today with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. That I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now this passage, it emphasizes the relentless nature of God's love for sinful humanity. God's love for humanity is such he does not give up on us. He pursues us in love. He seeks us with an everlasting love, Jeremiah tells us. But God doesn't just say he loves us. God proves his love for us. God in his love has given us a fact, something we can look at and we can say, because of this, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God loves me and God loves others. Look at verse eight. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can I be sure God loves me? Well, look at the cross. Why should anyone be amazed at God's love for them? Well, look at the cross. How can I help someone to know for sure God loves them? Well, point them to the cross. The reality is the cross demonstrates God's relentless love for humanity. And this passage gives us three characteristics of God's love that should motivate us to worship the God of love and inspire us to share the love of God. The first is God's love is boundless. As Paul writes about God's relentless love for humanity, he uses words to describe humanity that we don't often describe for ourselves. And and certainly we don't often associate with the idea of love. And yet understanding these words is crucial. 
to our being able to understand God's relentless love for us and to understand the gospel. By understanding these words, we can assure others and ourselves God does indeed love us. By understanding these words, we can show the proud why God's love for them is amazing. That the first word is helpless in verse six. Right. Have you ever been at a time when you were physically powerless to overcome a problem? Now, if you were if you've never been there, imagine. Imagine. Well, imagine this. Imagine we had you come up here and we had you lay down and then several of us picked up this great big heavy table and we set it on your chest. And then we we sat on it and we stood around it and we held it to make sure it didn't go anywhere. And we said, now, get up. But you couldn't. Unless you're Superman, you're not able to get up from that. You are helpless. And in fact, the more you struggle, the more trapped you're actually going to become. Because as you breathe out, it's going to collapse down upon you. And you're going to get more and more helpless as time goes on. You're going to get tired. You're going to start to panic. And you are unable To get out from underneath it. No matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you try, no matter how much you beg, there's nothing you could do if you're under this weight with all of us holding it down. There's nothing you could do to get out from underneath it. That that is the idea of helpless from verse 6. Only Paul is not referring to someone who is physically helpless. He's referring to people who are spiritually helpless. What are they spiritually, unspiritually helpless about? Well, they're, they're ungodly, which we'll talk about that in a second. But they are helpless in so many ways. You know, apart from Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us we are helpless to understand the things of God. According to Jesus in John 3, we are helpless to enter the kingdom of God. According to God's word in Romans 3.11, we are helpless to be able to seek God. Romans 8.7, Hebrews 11.6 assure us we are helpless to please God. Romans 3.12 declares we are helpless to do good. Why are we helpless to do these things? We are helpless to do these things because we are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1-3. All of humanity, apart from Jesus, is spiritually dead in trespasses and sin. Now, to understand spiritually dead is important. It's kind of common in our day to say humanity is sin sick. And in the view of humans being sin sick, it means they're they're not well. They may be even be mortally sick, but the situation is not entirely hopeless. All people, according to this view, are at least partially spiritually alive. Since they are partially spiritually alive, there is hope they can change their situation. They can turn over a new leaf. They can educate themselves. They can be more moral. They can be religious. They can do any number of things to to turn it around because they're just sin sick. The main problem with this is what we find in God's word. God's word does not use the phrase sin sick. God's word says we are spiritually dead. We are sin dead. And as a sin dead people, apart from Christ, we are helpless to change anything about our spiritual condition. We are as helpless to change anything about our spiritual condition as a dead person is to change his circumstances. 
In fact, Ephesians 2 says we are so spiritually dead and so helpless to change our circumstances that we are carried along the path of life laid out for us by the prince of the power of the air. So imagine taking a dead body and putting it in a fast-moving stream. Just as that dead body could do nothing to keep itself from going with the flow of the stream, so spiritually dead people cannot help themselves to go keep, keep from going the way the course of the world that is laid out for them. This is all people apart from Jesus Christ. This is every person who has not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. They are spiritually dead and they are helpless to do anything about it. And despite this condition, we see God loves the helpless. A second word that's important to understand in this is ungodly. At the end of verse 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now the word that's translated as ungodly is a strong word. And it essentially it means very unlike God. And it carries with it the idea of being in rebellion against God. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. But people apart from Jesus rebel and oppose his rule in their lives. If God has said, thou shalt not, sinful humanity says, I certainly shall if I want to. We don't want God to rule over our lives. We want to do what we please without any thought for God's will at all. God is holy, but we oppose his holiness. We not only oppose his holiness, we reject his moral standards. We demand to be able to live however we want to live, to do whatever we want to do, and for no one, not even God, to be able to call us into question on the lives we live and the decisions we make. God is omniscient, but we oppose His omniscience. The all-knowing God has said we are helpless, we are ungodly, we are sinners. But we don't like being called those names. And so we become angry at a God who would say that we are those things. We deny those things be, uh, we deny those things are true of us despite all of the evidence testifying they are true of us. It is a, a constant act of rebellion in the life of those who are apart from Jesus Christ. But God loves the ungodly. And then a third word is sinner in verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We are all sinners who have fallen short of God's righteous standards. Romans 3.23 Now one of the words used for sin in the New Testament, it means to miss the mark. It is a marksmanship term. If you've ever shot a bow and arrow, if you've ever shot a pistol or a rifle, and you set a target up, you've seen round target this area, and then this area, and then the bullseye in the middle. This word for sin, it pictures a marksman shooting for the bullseye, but not hitting it. They tried, but they fell short. Maybe they missed it just a little bit, or maybe they missed the entire target. doesn't matter. They, they didn't hit the bullseye. The mark God has set for us, the bullseye, is the Ten Commandments, which we do not have time to look at. But take some time and read Exodus 20. This is the mark. This is the bullseye. And being righteous. And being, not being a sinner. But the reality is we've all missed that mark. Now we've missed it for a variety of reasons. Some, we've tried to hit the mark. We, we really did. We, we tried to live for God. We tried to do what was right. But we, we were a little left or a little right or a little high or a little low. We just missed it. 
the reality is, if we're all being honest, not only did we aim for the mark and slightly fall short, sometimes we just said, that's not my bullseye. I'll do what I want to do. We didn't just fall short of the bullseye. We missed the whole target. We weren't even trying to hit the target. We have not only fallen short in trying to do what was right. We have just said, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, regardless of what God has said. And so we have all broken God's law. We are all, therefore, sinners. Helpless, ungodly, and sinner. It's a terrible picture of humanity. This is the picture of humanity is is hard on human pride and human self-righteousness. This picture of humanity is often offensive to people because they are proud and self-righteous. This picture of humanity is what many want to avoid thinking about and, and teaching about. Yet only when we understand this picture of humanity is correct, only then do we understand how amazing God's love for us is. Only when we understand we first, at one point in our life, were helpless, ungodly sinners. And that God loved me in that moment. Only then is God's love truly an amazing thing to me. Only in knowing God loves helpless, ungodly sinners can I look at the ungodly sinners in the world around us and care about their eternal destiny. Believe God can make a difference. In their lives because I know God loves them. Those three words are critical to our understanding. God's love is boundless. So boundless he loves helpless, ungodly sinners. But God's love is not only boundless, God's love is also sacrificial. The cross demonstrates God's relentless love for humanity because the cross is where Jesus died for helpless, ungodly sinners. Think for a second how amazing that really is. Think how amazing it is. God loved us enough to send his only son to come and die for us as helpless, ungodly sinners. This is the point Paul is making in verses 7 through 8. For For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died For us in these verses, Paul contrasts what God has done for us in Jesus to what we might do under similar circumstances. Now, it's possible for us to misread this, though, because we have this wrong idea of what it means for Jesus to come and die for us. I grew up uh, always intended on being in the army, so I read a lot of war books, particularly World War Two and Vietnam books. Typically, I focused on infantry soldiers. Um, And when you read Books like that, when you read stories like that, what you find is soldiers often sacrifice themselves to save their buddies. Every war book has at least one story of a dude charging a machine gun nest and taking the bullets so his friends could escape. One fellow jumping on a hand grenade, taking the blast so that everyone else can get by. And then, of course, there are stories that we see on the news Somebody runs into a burning building to save a baby or to save a family that's in there. And when we read these kind of stories, we see these kind of stories, we can sort of believe this is the normative way things are. People just routinely die for the sake of others. Then we read verse 7, For hardly will one die for a righteous person, though perhaps 
for a good person, someone would even dare to die. We read that and we miss the point. We think, what do you mean, hardly? Will one die for another? What do you mean, perhaps someone would die in the place of another? How can it be hardly and perhaps when there are literally thousands of stories giving us thousands of accounts of people who did just this? Well, this thinking misses the point. Think for a second about how many people you know. Probably we we know thousands of people. Now, narrow that down to how many of those people you, you love, truly love. Now, that probably narrows it down to hundreds of people. Now, narrow that list down even further to people for whom you would die. Right? You would give your life so that they might live. That probably narrows the list down even further, probably to just a handful of people. The people we're willing to die for, the the people we're willing to give our lives so that they may live. Here's what we know about most all of them, though. They're people we know. They're people we love. They're people who know us. And they're almost certainly people who love us as well. Are there many people on your list of folks you would die for who are hateful to you, hostile to you, despise you, show that they despise you with their words, their actions, their attitudes towards you? Probably not. See, the picture in in verse 7 and 8, it's not the picture of one soldier dying for his buddies. It's not the picture of a parent giving their life so their child can live or a child giving their life so the parent can live. A better way to understand it would be imagine a soldier jumping on a grenade to save the enemy combatants. Imagine a mother dying, going to the electric chair and dying in place of the man who killed her son. That's a much better picture of what is being talked about here. The the picture here isn't God sent Jesus to die for people who loved God. And were devoted to God, but just didn't quite manage to live as they ought to all of the time. It's the picture of God sending Jesus to come and die for helpless, ungodly sinners. People who were actively against him. People who wanted nothing to do with him. People who despised him with their attitudes, their words, their actions. People who rejected the one true God and worshipped other gods. People who would shake their fist at God and would say, you will not rule over me. God sent Jesus to die for those people. And not because he had to. Not because there was something outside of God compelling him and forcing him where he had to do it. God could have left all of us in our helpless, ungodly, sinful condition to face the just consequences of those actions. And that would have been a righteous act of God. It would not have been wrong for God to leave us. So why didn't he? Because God loves us. See, that's who God loves. This is God's love. It is a sacrificial love. And when we understand God's love in this way, how could we not be amazed at God's love for us and God's love for others? When we understand God's love in this life, how could we not love him back? How could we not love him as the supreme object of devotion in our lives? How could we not give him everything and anything he wants 
to do whatever it is He would want us to do? How could we not serve Him with every fiber of our being? How could we not tell others about this relentless love of God for powerless, godless sinners? God has loved us and He has sacrificed much for us. But God's love is not only boundless to love to love helpless, godless sinners. God's love is not only sacrificial to give for their sakes, but God's love is redemptive. Let's say we believe the cross demonstrates God's relentless love for humanity. Because on the cross, Jesus died for helpless, ungodly sinners. Let's also say we embrace Jesus, his death in our place. What difference does this make in our lives for God to love us enough to send Jesus to die for our sins? This is key. God's love accomplishes something in us and through us and for us. And Paul lays out what God's love does for us. God's redemptive love does for us in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, much more than having been justified by his blood. We have been justified through the blood of Christ. Justification is when God declares a believing sinner To be righteous because of the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Christ. That's important to understand. God declares the believing sinner to be righteous because of Jesus. Justification is not God saying we weren't really guilty. We were. Justification is not God saying our sin wasn't really that bad. It really was. Justification isn't God saying our sin didn't really deserve the wages of sin. It does. We really were helpless, ungodly sinners living in rebellion against God. Instead of justification saying any of these things, justification is God crediting Jesus' righteousness into our accounts. Our justification is based entirely upon Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life and perfectly fulfilled the law, something we could never do. On our best day, we have not lived blamelessly. On our best day, we have not kept the law even that one day. And so every day of our lives, through one way or another, our sins have earned the wage of death. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. On the cross, Jesus absorbed all the wrath and all the punishment our sin had earned. And after taking all of our consequences for all of our sin, he died. He was laid in a tomb. And three days later, he victoriously rose from the dead as a mighty declaration. He was the son of God who who had the power and the right to forgive sins. And when we repent of our sins and we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, an exchange takes place. Our sin is taken off of us and it is placed on Jesus. His righteousness is taken from him and it is placed in our account so that when God looks at us, What he sees in us is the righteousness of God through Christ. This is justification. God declares us to be righteous because of what Jesus has done. 
Our righteousness is never based upon our good deeds. Not initially, not now, not at any point in the future. Our righteousness is not based upon our own inherent goodness. Not initially, not now, not in the future. Our righteousness is not based upon anything we have ever done or ever will do. Not now, not in the past, not in the future. Our righteousness is always and only based upon Jesus and what he has done. This is justification. Paul says, through justification, we shall be saved from the wrath to come. And last year we looked at the book of Revelation. We saw what happens when God begins to pour out a measure of his wrath upon the earth during the tribulation period and in the time of wrath toward the end. If you've read your Bible at all, you know there's also a place called hell where the wrath of God will be poured out upon sinful humanity for all of eternity and the smoke of their torments will rise forever and ever. Those are the sure futures for all who reject Jesus. Now, if you've ever, if you were here through our study in Revelation, if you've read about hell, you know those are not pleasant times. It's not a measure of, well, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's not a time of, well, we'll all have a party because I'll be there with all my friends. It is nothing like that. I believe it is far more horrible and our minds can comprehend. I believe as bad as we imagine hell to be, as bad as we imagine the tribulation period to be, I believe they will be far worse than that. Now, the wrath of God is a terrible thing to contemplate. It's a terrible thing to think on and to imagine. But those who have not been justified through faith in Jesus have not been saved from the wrath of God. And so they will face the wrath of God, the sure, terrible wrath of God. The love of God redeems us from the wrath to come. God's love also reconciles us. We see in verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The word reconcile means brought into friendship from a state of disagreement or enmity. In other words, we go from being enemies of God to being friends of God. Jesus' death and resurrection brought an end to the hostility between us and God and then turns us into the friend of God, which I think that's something we can underestimate if we're not careful. Think about it for a second. You've probably had an enemy in your life. Have you ever had an enemy that you brought an end to the hostilities between the two of you? Sure, probably so. Did you then go on to become just best friends? Probably not. That's what happens here. See, the death of Jesus doesn't just bring an end to the hostilities where there's this tense end of hostilities and we just ignore each other. I ignore God. He ignores me. We We don't think or talk or do anything toward each other. That's not what happens. That's what Jesus has accomplished. Instead, it's something far better. It takes us from the state of being hostile to God, and it makes us to where we are friends of God. This is only through Jesus. Now, I believe what this is saying is the idea of being reconciled is we're brought back to the kind of relationship with God we were always meant to have. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, they had near perfect communion with God. 
He came and walked with them in the cool of the day. They knew God. God knew them. They talked to God. God talked to them. And that was the way God intended for it to be. God always intended for his people to have a love-based relationship with him. What Jesus does is he, what Jesus has done is ended the hostility and through his death and resurrection, we are brought together and we are restored back to the place where we were initially meant to be, to have the kind of relationship with God that we were always meant to have. Now, the way we know this is true is because God has given us several gauges, several ways to tell whether or not we've been reconciled, whether or not we've been justified. Because we can't go off our feelings. Some days I don't necessarily feel justified. Some days I don't necessarily feel reconciled to God. Look at verse 11. Not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Not only are we justified and reconciled, not only will we be saved from the wrath to come, but now we can celebrate in God because of what Christ has done for us. I like the way the message paraphrase does this verse. It says, now we have actually received this amazing friendship with God. We're no longer content to simply say it in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus the Messiah. New Living Translation says we rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you. You think about your praise to the Lord that you offer to Him. Would you describe it as plotting prose or singing and shouting? How would you describe your relationship with God? Do you have a wonderful new relationship with God because of Jesus? These are important. These are important things because this is what we're meant to have. Our relationship with God is is based upon love. It, It is meant to be something we rejoice in. The God of heaven has loved us. The God of heaven has sent His Son to die for us. The God of heaven has justified us and has brought us to Himself. How could we not celebrate? And then the God of heaven has made us so we can have a relationship with Him. How could I not strive for that? How could I not long for that? How could I not do that? So, how is your relationship with God? Would you describe it as a wonderful Relationship with God. How would you describe the way you praise God? I like, I love the term plotting prose. You know what plotting is, right? You don't give up. Bless God, you're going to keep on keeping on, but you ain't necessarily happy about it. Right? In the army, we would plot in our road marches. You put your head down and you walk. It's so stupid. They have vehicles for a reason. Grief is tough. Hurt. Right? That's plotting. You know, some people worship that way. I rejoice in the Lord always. That's just, they have to. Well, I'm at church. If I don't sing, people are going to look at me. I better sing. But it's not celebrating that we're singing to God. It's not shouting and singing. Some people, some people truly may have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus, but they have nothing that would resemble a relationship with God. 
They have do's and they have don'ts and they have religious ideas and things that they do. But as far as somebody say, do you know God? They they probably would not say, yes, I know God. They would say, well, I I believe. But do you know Jesus? Well, I I believe. And I think we're meant to go beyond, well, I believe, to I know. I, I know that I know him. I know Jesus. I have a wonderful relationship with Christ. I have a wonderful relationship with God. This is what was meant to happen in Genesis. This is what was broken by sin. This is part of what Jesus has come to restore and to reconcile. So do you plotting prose or celebrate? Do you have a wonderful relationship or just religious activities? Those are important questions to answer. And only you can answer them for yourself. Let me close with a story. In the 1800s, the wife of a healthy, wealthy railroad executive was traveling around Europe enjoying shopping for the latest fashions. Her husband didn't mind if she spent money. He knew that if she wanted to spend a serious amount, she would send word and ask permission. One day, a message sent by telegraph did come to the executive with the following request. Dearest Clarence, I came across the most exquisite diamond necklace in Paris. It cost $10,000. The husband quickly replied, no, comma, price too high. Unfortunately, when the telegraph operator received the message on the other side of the Atlantic, he failed to include the comma. The wife was delighted when he received a message stating, no price too high. She purchased her treasure, reveling in the thought of how much her husband loved her. The redemption of the human race cost God the death of his only begotten son on a cruel cross. We can rejoice, though, knowing that God did not pause or hesitate when it came time to pay the price for the sins of the world. Unlike the husband in the story, dear Clarence, God's response was no price too high. Let's all stand. Our heads bowed with our eyes closed. So I want to end with how is your relationship with Jesus? I know the people here all made professions of faith. All would tell me they have would have would tell me and have told me they are born again. So that's not the question I want to leave you with today. The question is how is your relationship with Jesus? Is it plotting prose? Is it religious? duties or is it celebrating a wonderful new relationship with God if it is plotting prose and religious duties I understand that I've been there I drift there sometimes but here's what I want you to know that's not the way it's meant to be Jesus did not die for our praise to be plotting prose. Jesus did not die so we would have religious duties. Jesus died so we could be reconciled to God and enjoy a wonderful relationship with God. Be so amazed at the love of God that we sing and shout as we celebrate His love for us. So if you do not have a wonderful new relationship with God, if you your life is filled with religious duties and plotting prose, then what I want to urge you to do today is come to Jesus. It's not a, it's not about try harder. 
you can't try harder to fix that. You must come to Jesus and say something's wrong. Things aren't the way they're meant to be. Don't leave feeling condemned. You're justified. Don't leave feeling you have to try harder. That's just more religious duty. Instead, recognize something's wrong and go to the only one who can fix it. Go to the cross and cry out, change my heart, fill me with your spirit, purge from my life anything that's keeping me from having the kind of relationship with you I'm meant to have. I'm going to pray and then we'll open the altars up. And if you want to come forward and pray, you can. If you want to pray where you are, you can. What matters in this time is that if God is dealing with you, you're dealing with him. Our Father, we love you today. And we know our love for you is only a response to your love for us. We're astounded that you would love us as helpless, ungodly sinners. We rejoice. We rejoice to know that you love us as helpless, ungodly sinners. Thank you that your love sacrificed on our behalf. My goodness. Let us never get over the cross and what Jesus Christ has done for us. Father, we rejoice in being justified. Rejoice in being reconciled. Lord, help us to grow into that wonderful new relationship with you where we celebrate and sing and shout your praise. Search us right now, Lord. And if this isn't an accurate description of our relationship with you, Help us to know that this is the reality of what it can be. This is the reality of what it's meant to be. And let us seek you. Let us be willing to lay aside anything. Let us come to the cross and cling and cry out until you you do this work in our hearts and our lives. Have your way, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, the altars are open if you want to come.